This is the last message of our series on human agency in the Bible. And our focus this morning is on the perfect agent, Jesus. Uh, next week, we intend to start a series on 1 Corinthians. And so we'll be in 1 and 2 Corinthians for a while. Uh, just want to let you know that's what's next. If you've ever been given a, a really demanding, really important job to do uh, that, that you've never done before, <laughs> then you know the value of having a really good example to follow. Someone who's already done the task very well and who knows the pitfalls and the hurdles that you're likely to encounter. It's even better if the person providing that example is available to come alongside you, to mentor you, to help you through the learning process as you begin to do that task. The best situation of all is if that, if that one who is serving as example and mentor is also able to fully equip you, if he's able to impart to you all of the resources that you will need for this very important task. Brothers and sisters, all of that rightly describes our situation as agents of the living God. Uh, we have the perfect example, the perfect mentor, and the perfect helper. Uh, the assignment that Jesus himself accepted from his Father goes way, way beyond the assignment that he has handed to us. But God intends us to know that everything that he requires of us, Jesus has already done. And he's done it perfectly. So we know where to look. And he has not left us to our own devices for that assignment. God intends and God commands that we will fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of faith every day of our lives until we see him face to face. Jesus is our perfect reference point for doing the eternally valuable assignment, my son is calling me, <laughs> for doing the eternally valuable assignment that he has given to us as the redeemed children of God. But Jesus, again, Jesus is our perfect reference point, but he's far more than just an example. Uh, he is with us to the end of the age. At the end of, of Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said that to his disciples. Through his indwelling Holy Spirit, he is with us and he is in us to be alongside us and by the Spirit to fully equip us for everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. He's already given it to us, all of it. Ephesians 1 says, We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. All right. The first thing I want to consider this morning is that Jesus was the perfect agent of God the Father. I use the word was only because our reference point for the task that God has filled our hands to do is to look at what Jesus already did when he came the first time. We are here to seek and save that which was lost. We are here to show off Christ, and we need to look at what he has already done. It might seem out of place to hear Jesus spoken of as an agent of God. How can the one who is God be an agent of God? But if you look at the language that Jesus continually used during his earthly ministry, 
It is the language of agency. Over and over, Jesus referred to himself as sent from the Father, sent from heaven to earth. And he always presented himself as the perfect representative of the one who sent him. In the first passage that Jonathan just read from chapter 5 of John's Gospel, Jesus left no doubt that during his first coming, his task was to act as the agent of his Father in all that he did and said. Let me read just part of that passage again. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something that he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Verse 30, he said, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now that's as clear and uncompromising a, de a description of good agency as you'll find anywhere. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. A faithful agent doesn't serve his sender on his own terms or on his own initiative. In other words, he does not speak or act independently of the one that he represents. Not only did Jesus always do exclusively what rightly represented his father who sent him, but as he did so, there was never a conflict of wills between him and his father. In Luke 22, verse 42, as Jesus prayed to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he was crucified, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. In his humanness, Jesus had a will that had to be submitted to the will of his Father. But in his case, and in his case alone, there was never any contradiction of wills. In fact, that very passage proves and, and asserts that there was no contradiction. There was no hint of a battle of wills. Even as Jesus considered the unspeakable agony that he was about to bear that night and the next day in our place, he prayed very deliberately in the hearing of his disciples that his Father's will would be accomplished no matter what it required him, Jesus, to endure. Now we struggle to comprehend what Jesus was actually saying to his father in that instant. He was not expressing fear. Jesus was not expressing fear. No member of the, tri of the Trinity is ever described in the Bible as fearful. Because the only one worthy of fear is God. And Jesus is God. I believe Hebrews 12 helps us understand, at least in one aspect, what Jesus meant when he asked his father if that cup could pass from him in, uh, in the garden that night. Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3, verses 1 through 3, command us to fix our eyes as we run this race, fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith. And it, then it says, who for the joy set before him 
endured the cross, despising the shame. Not the pain, despising the shame. And has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Twice those verses speak of what Jesus endured. And both times it has nothing to do with fear. In fact, the word contempt would be closer to accurate. Jesus despised the shame of being arrested, mocked, spat upon, tortured, and crucified by sinners as if he were a criminal. He endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Beloved, no man was ever as devoted to the glorification, to the right display of the holiness and worthiness of God than Jesus was and is. But at the cross, the one who alone is both perfect God and perfect man experienced the greatest inglory, the greatest humiliation ever suffered by man. It wasn't fear that moved Jesus to ask his father if the cup of his suffering and death might pass from him. It was offense. It was offense at the magnitude of the infinite violation of his own holiness, the holiness of the triune God by the wretched likes of sinners like you and me. And certainly it was also grief because of the separation that Jesus knew his death would impose between him and his Father on that darkest and most victorious of all days. The words that Jesus spoke from the cross were foretold a thousand years earlier through David in Psalm 22. Those words give voice to the single most profound episode of suffering that anyone, anyone will ever suffer. Jesus, who from eternity past had never experienced a single instant of estrangement from the Father or the Spirit, cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You and I will never come close to comprehending and certainly never come close to experiencing the magnitude of that suffering. Jesus was forsaken by His Father so that we who deserve that forsaking for all eternity would be reconciled to God forever through faith in Him alone. By His wounds, we are healed. Even on that terrible day, Jesus' will was to do the will of His Father, and that is exactly and only what He did. Beloved, that is perfect agency. We will never have an example better than that. <laughs> All right, so Jesus is the perfect agent. And the second major point that I want to make sure we walk away with is that Jesus owns the image that we bear. This is a big deal theologically. This is failing this point has given rise to all manner of false religion. It's indispensable for us to know and acknowledge that the perfect agent was not, is not merely a bearer of the image of God as you and I are. He is the owner. 
He is the very source of the Imago Dei, the image of God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. It doesn't say He shows or reflects the radiance of God. It says He is the radiance of God and the exact representation of His nature. Genesis 1 tells us that God created human beings in His own image and likeness. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And I mentioned then that the word image that God uses in that passage in Genesis 1 is also used in the Old Testament to refer to idols, to images that men carve and make out of created things to represent the gods of their own making. The only created representation of God that the one true God allows on this earth is the image of Himself that He puts in us. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I stated that wrongly. Robert got up earlier and talked about something he needed to modify from his statement or clarify from his statement. I need to clarify this because what I said was really wrong. I said a couple of weeks ago, the only created representation of God that the one true God allows on earth is the image of himself that he created, and that image is us. That image is not us. And that's huge. I've tried to be very careful and prayerful in my selection of words, and especially in this whole matter of image and agency, because it, it, it touches all kinds of things. But that statement was wrong. God kindly made that clear to me this week without anyone else having to say it. But let me add, it would have been perfectly fine for any of you to call me out and tell me that. You need to weigh every word that comes out of my mouth just like you weigh every word that comes out of any else, anybody else's mouth against the unadulterated milk of the Word of God. There's only one data, data source that's always accurate, and that's the Word of God. You and I are not images of God. We are image bearers. His image is not us. His image is in us. And that is absolutely critical because of the difference that it points out between us and Christ. As we sang at the beginning of this hour, Jesus is the holy, uncreated one. He is creator. John 1 verses 1 and 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then it says, All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So how much did Jesus create of the creation? All of it. Colossians 1 actually showed that passage earlier. It actually uses the word image in reference to Jesus in a way that applies to no one else except Jesus. It says he is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean he's the first created person. It means he precedes all of creation. And that's exactly what it then goes on to say. It says, he is that image. By him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all 
things, and in Him all things hold together. Before Christ created everything, the only thing that existed was God. Friends, the image that we bear as redeemed agents of God is the image that Jesus owns for all eternity. Indeed, the image we bear is Christ in us. He is our Creator God. Again, countless false religions have arisen from the denial of that emphatic, repeated, and crystal clear assertion of God through His prophets and apostles. If you wouldn't know where to go in the Bible to be reminded of and to affirm that foundational truth that Jesus is God, let today be the day that you start knowing where to go. You know that the Gospel of John starts with that affirmation. That's the first of all the things that John presents. Jesus is God. Now, I'm going to spend the rest, most of the rest of our time uh, looking at what imperfect agents must learn from the perfect agent. And I won't present, pretend that my list is exhaustive. It certainly is not. But each of, the, each of the lessons or points that I'll point out this morning, I believe, is vitally important for all of us. The first one has already been established by what we've considered already, and that is that the scent must rightly represent the sender, no matter what it costs. There was absolutely no variance between the will and ways of God the Father and the will and ways of God the Son. Jesus said and did only what he saw his Father say and do. And so there's no ambiguity for us if we're copying Jesus, if we're following Jesus. The guesswork about what we are to do has been removed. We do and say what rightly represents Him. And we don't do and say what doesn't. The second thing that we need to know is demanded by that first thing. And that is, we have to know the sender. If we're going to rightly represent the one who sent us, we have to know Him. And that's a lot more than just knowing about Him. Jesus' words in John chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, again, are very important to us. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something that He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. And then verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all the things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Now, look at that for a minute. Notice that Jesus does not say in those verses that he, that he did what his Father told him to do. Jesus doesn't speak there about his Father telling him what to do. In fact, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that that conversation ever happened. Perhaps it did, but, but what Jesus says is, he does what his Father shows him. What he sees his Father doing. Now you and I require all of that. We, we have to be told and shown all that God requires of us 
But it's worth noting that the perfect example given to us in the perfect agent is Jesus. And Jesus did on earth what He saw His Father doing from heaven. I believe that's consistent with what we saw a couple of weeks ago in God's Word about headship and submission in the body of Christ. In 1 Peter 5, Peter tells elders not to lead the flock of God by lording it over them, but instead by proving to be examples to the flock. In other words, the heart of godly leadership is not, first and foremost, telling other people what to do and making sure that they do it. The heart of godly leadership is doing what God requires you and others to do so that when they copy you, they're doing what God requires. Godly leadership is being an example worthy of copying because you're copying Jesus. None of us does that perfectly, but God doesn't change the assignment. Be imitators of God. Walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That's Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. So the question that you and I need to let God answer for us so that we may copy Jesus is not, what would Jesus do? That question leads to a lot of speculative nonsense. What would Jesus do? The question that we need to let God answer for us is, what did Jesus do? Knowing the answer to that question tells us what Jesus is like, who he is, tells us his agenda. That's the heart of what we must know. We must know him to be like him. You and I cannot be as Christ in the world if we don't know Christ. The Bible gives us very good news on that front because God has given us exactly what we need in order to know Jesus. Truly, personally, intimately. He's given us all that we need to know the triune God as He intends to be known by us. There's a very strong connection between what Jesus said in John chapter 5 about His knowledge of His Father's will and ways and what He said in John 15 about his disciples' knowledge of his, Christ's, will and ways. Listen for the similarities between these two brief passages. John 5, verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. John 15, verse 15, No longer do I call you slaves, talking to his disciples. For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And just two verses before that, Jesus said to his disciples, greater love, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. God the Father loves the Son whom he sent into the world So he showed his son all the things that he himself is doing. God the Son loves us whom he has sent into the world. So he has made known to us what he, our master and friend, is doing. 
He hasn't left us in the dark. He's brought us right into His war room to lay out His plan to reconcile the things in heaven with the things on earth with Himself as the head over all. And we know what to do and we know what to say and we know why to do and say it. Because He's shown Himself. He's shown us His whole plan. Everything that He needs us to know. We truly have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. And the way we come to know those things intimately and personally, beloved, is by knowing the Word. We behold God in His Word. There's really no other place for us to do that that isn't compromised. We see Christ in one another. But that's not, our, that's not our perfect reference point. Our perfect reference point is God's revelation of Himself in His Word. The living and active Word of God. That sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, able to discern the innermost thoughts of the heart. It lays, his Word lays us bare before Him, and it reveals Him to us. Go to the Word of the Lord to meet the Lord of the Word. Don't go to the Word of the Lord to get a bunch of facts. It's a relationship. And God intends for us to know Him so that we can rightly display Him. All right, so first, the sent do and say only what rightly represents the sender, no matter what it costs. Secondly, the sent must know the sender and the third mission-critical truth that we discover when we fix our eyes on Jesus, the perfect agent, is that the sent must depend on the sender. During the 33 years from Jesus' physical birth to his physical death, Jesus gave up much that rightly belonged to him. And part of that divesting had the purpose to ensure, among other things, that his agency on God's behalf, would be sufficiently like ours so that he would be our perfect example. I believe there was a great condescension involved in what Jesus did for our sakes in many respects. But one of them is he made himself, so he, he became an agent that we could copy. Only if we're, per, only if we're entirely dependent on him. Jesus truly lived as man. Paul Johannan mentioned this on our, in our Wednesday discussion. Jesus truly lived as man during his time on earth at his first advent. He lived as man. Perfect man. During the 33 years from his birth to his death, Jesus took on the mortal flesh that you and I share right now. In Philippians 2, Paul says to us, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed, He was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be clung to. But He emptied Himself. He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In that emptying, in that divesting of his rightful glory, 
Jesus willingly became dependent upon the Father and the Spirit in many ways just as you and I are. He did not divest himself of authority or sovereignty. He did not divest himself of his deity. But in his exercise of his divine authority and sovereignty, he chose to be dependent on the Father and the Spirit. If you don't think so, read the Gospels with that thought in mind. Jesus continually prayed to the Father and relied on the Spirit, did he not? In fact, the examples of both are everywhere in the Gospels. He prayed prayers of praise, thanksgiving, and request to his Father. In fact, the only kind of prayer that Jesus didn't pray that we pray is prayers of confession, because he never sinned. Which is good, because then he couldn't have saved us. Jesus arose early to pray to his Father. He prayed to his Father in the middle of the night. He prayed to his Father before he took food. He prayed to his Father as he performed miracles. And in those prayers, he depended on the Holy Spirit to enable those miracles. He prayed to his Father for his disciples. He prayed to his Father for us. He prayed to his Father for his enemies and even for his executors. If we are following the perfect example of the perfect agent, beloved, we will be prayerfully dependent on God at all times for all things. And we will pray to our Heavenly Father just as Jesus taught us. Now, I don't pounce when I hear Christians praying or singing to Jesus or to the Holy Spirit, but I've gently challenged a number of brothers and sisters to humbly consider why they're doing so. Hear me out. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, He did. And He taught them to pray to the Father. There is no instance in the New Testament in which Jesus ever prayed to the Holy Spirit. He relied on the Holy Spirit. He was empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit. But he prayed to his Father. In keeping with our Lord's example, the Apostle Paul prayed numerous prayers in his epistles. And he prayed to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 3, and this one really goes, cuts to the chase, in Ephesians 3, when Paul asked that the saints be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, and that we know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, he did not say, Spirit, fill them with your power. He did not say, Jesus, make them know your love. Instead, he bowed his knees before the Father, before whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And he asked the Father to do those things. Now again, I'm not at all advocating that we pounce on every Christian who with a heart of adoration and dependence talks to the Son or the Spirit, either in prayers or in songs. But beloved, we're called to follow Christ. And that means, that means we don't spend time looking for ways to, to fill out what we think is lacking and missing from his example. Instead, we delight in the perfection of his example and we do what he did. Does that make sense? 
We don't have a better idea than he does about how to live the Christian life. You and I don't need to spend a single second worrying that the Son or the Spirit is going to somehow miss something from our prayers if we're talking to the Father. It's not going to happen. Now, don't let that little aside distract from the bigger point here. And that point is, if we are following the perfect example of the perfect agent, we will be prayerfully dependent upon God at all times, in all things, and for all things just as Jesus was. My fourth point here is that the sent must leave their glory to the sender. And this is, of course, foundational to being good agents of God. In John chapter 8, when Jesus told the Jews that whoever keeps his word will never see death, they said to him, surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too, so who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. But it is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Guys, if that doesn't get our attention, we must be asleep. Jesus, the Lord of glory, the one and only man to whom all glory, praise, and honor is due, says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. What does that mean for you and me? <laughs> Should be pretty clear, right? The servant is not greater than the master. So if you and I glorify ourselves, our glory is nothing. Good agents don't seek their own glory. Ever. Now, God knows that we struggle with this, but he never changes the assignment. I catch myself way too often, beloved, making sure in not so subtle ways that the people around me know what I've done to serve God and man. And every time I do, I'm really just serving myself. Paul said, if I'm still looking for the approval of man, I am not serving Christ. Galatians 1. It is a grievous violation of good agency on God's behalf. It is shameful. It is at cross purposes with God every single time I do that. The only glory, the only reputation that I can ever rightly draw anyone's attention to is the glory of the one who left you and me here to represent Him on earth, to glorify Him. When we delight in that marvelous task, it's amazingly freeing. Gone are our fearful and even panicked efforts to vindicate ourselves, to defend ourselves, to make sure we're getting credit for what we've done, and in place of all that fearful manipulation that devastates relationships between people, we're left with pure and simple peace and rest. The only glory we care about is the glory of the one who sent us. He's the only one to whom any glory is due. <laughs> Even when he gives us crowns on that last day, we're going to cast those crowns at his feet. 
Now, this does not mean that we don't care, that we have no concern for our own well-being, for our own reputation, or for our own significance. It means that we agree with God that all of those things have to come from Him and not from our own hands. 1 Peter 5, verse 6 says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. Those two things are very strongly connected. Your anxiety is very strongly connected with who, who you are exalting. And if you're humbled before God, if His, if His glory is all you care about, you're throwing your anxieties at His feet, and that's, that's where they belong, because He cares for you. He's going to take care of you. You don't have to worry about your glory. You don't have to worry about your reputation. You don't have to worry about getting credit. God will take care of you. Let your business be, and my business be, glorifying our sender. All right, last thing I want to talk about this morning, and this is a big deal. The church is presently the closest thing to the perfect agent of God on earth. And the, the passage that it, that's really central here, what I'm not going to take the time to, to go into it in any depth, is Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. I highly recommend you check that out again. Here in the land of rugged individualism, we, and I include myself here, find it really challenging to think about our assignment from God as a group assignment, right? But if we're thinking biblically, we cannot dodge the fact that doing Christ's work on earth is not at its core my assignment or your assignment. It's our assignment together. The present incarnation of Christ on earth, incarnation means Christ in the flesh, the present incarnation of Christ on earth isn't me and it isn't you. Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Colossians 1 make it very clear that the incarnation of Christ on earth today is one body with many parts. And we're the parts. And Christ is the head. And what Christ is at work in us to do is to build all of us up together through that which every individual part contributes until we all attain to the fullness, the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. He's growing us up into one new man, and that new man is Christ. Not only do good agents of God never act independently of our sender, by God's beautiful design, we never act independently of each other. If you go back to that first page of your Bible, you see that from the very beginning, God's flawless design for man's agency on his behalf in his creation as his image bearers was plural, not singular. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, from the very beginning, it took two not one, 
to fulfill the task of agent and image bearer. Brothers and sisters, in the truest sense of the word, (laughs) you and I are in this together. We are together, both in the local body and in in the body of Christ worldwide. We are the continuing presence of Christ in the flesh on earth to advance his kingdom, to seek and save that that which was lost, to exalt his name, to put him on display in the world. That's how the redeemed, willing agents of the living God do his work, his way, in his creation. Heavenly Father, we can only begin to express our gratitude to you for the eternally valuable work that you have filled our hands to do together as your agents and image bearers. We are profoundly and completely dependent on you to make us both willing and able to do that work every day of our lives. So Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to depend Teach us to leave our glory to you, our sender. Above all, dear Lord, teach us to know you. To know your Son and your Spirit that we may rightly put you on display during the short term that remains to us before we stand in your presence forever. We ask this in the name of our perfect Example, your perfect agent, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.